Well, good morning, church. Today's scripture comes from the book of Acts. It's a book and a chapter which records the very first Christians in their stories and struggles to make meaning out of what they've witnessed. It's perhaps more than any other book of the Bible bears witness to the big question, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to take part in a community like this? How ought we organize ourselves? How ought we make sense of this history? How ought we take part in the mysteries of the sacraments? in the mysteries of Christ, and all of those things that today we take for granted as normal. When Acts was written, nothing that we today call Christian was normal. What you're doing today is not normal. Not baptism, not communion, certainly not gathering weekly to sing and worship in this way. And so with this context in mind, let us read the word of God in the spirit of these early Christians with wonder and with fresh eyes. And though it's long, I think we can read it together, if you will read with me. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, get up and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you are reading? He replied, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? for his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, about whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. And they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. The word of our Lord. May... We pray, loving God, may you bless our living and our understanding of these words of abundant life. Amen. So what we have in these pages is a story, one that is often untold in church audiences with characters and stakes, and I think a lesson if we choose to read it. It's a story that contains a baptism, 
And that clarifies what baptism really is. It's a story that contains a conversion, a transformation. And in fact, it's one of the first conversion stories in the books of Acts. One of the first times that it's documented that someone comes to a strange new faith, new identity in Jesus Christ without ever having met Jesus Christ. And importantly, it is documented as the first conversion story of a Gentile or a person who's not of Jewish descent. In it, this person is baptized into a new faith, yes, but also transformed into a new understanding, an understanding of something they thought they knew or else something they were trying to understand but couldn't, something they were seeking, something that was right there in front of them like the text, but it was inscrutable to them. And so before we jump into the water of that story, I want to tell you a little bit of another, my own story, my own sort of conversion story, certainly a story of baptism. Because as many of you know, I was baptized on my 18th birthday. And because I had spent far too much time reading this book and others, because of my love for legendary and epic narratives, much like the one we'd find in today's scripture, where it seems as if divine intervention is around every corner and every coincidence is necessary for a plot to bloom. Because of this, not only was I baptized on my 18th birthday, I also broke up with my high school boyfriend. I also packed up my family Subaru and began a journey across the country because like Philip, I felt as if I heard an angel of the Lord say, get up and go and take the scenic route, the wilderness road, while you're at it. Except I was not going to the South, I was going to college. And so to understand this story, we need a little bit of context, right? To understand any story. A bit of background on my background. Well, I grew up in a very rural region of Southern California. My public school system was the lowest paid in the state of California. And I was dreadfully unprepared, academically and socially, for the kinds of ideas and theories, norms and paradigms of the new college environment. So I was baptized on my 18th birthday, but two weeks later, when I arrived to the destination of my journey, I was once again dunked into cold, cold water of a new reality, a new way of thinking, a new way of perceiving this world and of living in it. And that's what baptism is, isn't it? An introduction into something new a new way of living and embodying our lives and identities. And so today, as we unpack this story, I want to introduce you to that cold water, that major body of water and body of thought into which I plunged that day. And I want us to use it as a community to interpret this story in front of us and to begin to empathize with its characters, to see what's always been in front of us anew. I want us to read this story through the lens of intersectionality. Now, some of you might have heard of this concept. Some of you might have been told about it by your children when they returned from college that first week. They might have received phone calls like my mother after freshman orientation when she asked, how is it? And I said, I have so many five syllable words I cannot even begin to share with you. Some of you might have heard about this term on the news under a very scary word of identity politics, and some of you might be stealing yourselves for this sermon right now. But like many things, I think that's a result of lack of dialogue and open understanding. Like our protagonist, the Ethiopian eunuch, 
replies in the story when Philip asks, do you understand what you're reading? How can any of us understand unless someone guides us? So like Philip, I invite you to get into the chariot, sit beside me for a while as we read and read into this scripture, diving deep into the baptismal waters of new depths. So the term intersectionality, intersectionality, was developed by a woman named Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989. Crenshaw, as a black woman writing in the 1980s, found that most conversations about gender, about what it means to be a woman and embody that, that identity in the world were had by white women. And she found that her experiences and understandings of what it meant to be a woman weren't really included in those conversations. Similarly, she found that most conversations about race, about what it means to be a person of color and live in the world, were had by men. And their experiences and understandings of social issues also didn't seem to include her. She found that her experience of living in the world was not understandable in terms of these binaries, black or white, man or woman. Instead, she found that different identities combine, overlap, intersect to create unique experiences of living in the world and unique experiences of their stories. Because like we know, no two people are alike. No two identities are formed in the same way. And a perfect case study for understanding identity in this way is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch that we just read. Because though Acts was written in the Roman Empire sometime between 60 and 100 AD, long before Crenshaw coined this term, long before it came mainstream, and long before I was introduced to it, you can see that the author of the text, St. Luke, has many of the same concerns about identity. And as a result, the reading of this story through this lens of intersectionality has become increasingly popular among biblical scholars. So let's begin. Like any story, let's get to know our characters. Who is this first Gentile convert? First, we're told that this character is Ethiopian. In the ancient world, race and nationality were not conceived of exactly as we do today in the United States, but scholars do know that skin color and nationality were factors. Ethiopia in those days was called Kush, and to quote one scholar, it was considered the end of the world. It was far away, few had ever traveled there. No one knew what it meant to be from there. And people from this country were, as you might expect, black. They were of African descent, and in the ancient world, blackness was not just about skin color or physical characteristics. It also signified morality. As one scholar writes, colors were commonly associated with moral character, and it, they carried a negative sense. In other words, the author of this text, when he includes these details, is not operating in a pre-racial utopia. In other words, black people face many of the same stereotypes that they have historically and do today. And in other words, this character was likely marginalized, oppressed, or discriminated against on the basis of the color of their skin and the origin of their people. This happens today. This, though ancient, can speak to modern truth. That's one identity. Second, we're told this character is a eunuch. Again, in the ancient world, gender and sexuality were not conceived of exactly as they are today, but still, we know they were certainly factors, and eunuchs occupied a really unique space. A eunuch was commonly a male who had been castrated by force. 
oftentimes for the purposes of serving in a royal court. And scholars have written that in the ancient world, eunuchs were considered hybrid or monstrous to those sensibilities. They were neither man nor woman, but something else. Often they adopted feminine dress and appearance, but they weren't considered women. And because they didn't behave in the way that real men of that day were supposed to behave, they also didn't have the rights that were given to men. They were viewed with suspicion as different, as apart, as not fitting into the clean binary which existed between man and woman at that time. They might have used they, them pronouns. And not only were they discriminated against socially and politically, but religiously. In the Bible, according to the biblical book of Deuteronomy, they weren't allowed inside the temple. In other words, this character was probably discriminated against, marginalized, or oppressed on the basis of a non-binary gender and the assumptions that were made of their sexuality. This, though ancient, can speak to modern truth because it still happens today. Third, we're told that this eunuch worked for Candace, a queen of Ethiopia, that they were in charge of the treasury. As a result, we get some understanding of the character's class. We can imagine they had some power, some money, some influence, and that still, they weren't free. This position was not a free one. Eunuchs were often slaves, and so what does it mean to have that money, that class, if you're not free? So even despite certain privileges afforded by class, this person's identity was still determined by the way they were viewed through other. Though capable, they still couldn't quite get ahead. And then finally, we're told this character was on a journey. Philip met this character on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza while he was away from his home nation, while he was a visitor a foreigner, and a threat. At the time in which this event took place, Ethiopians were regarded as the enemy of Rome, as a threat at the important border of Egypt that could be stopped but not conquered. They were immigrants and threats. In other words, this character was marginalized, oppressed, or discriminated against on the basis of their nationality or their immigration status. This still happens. This, though ancient, can speak to modern truth. And so all of these different identities coalesce to say that this character's experience of the world is shaped by their race, by their gender, their sexuality, their class, their national and legal status, their various intersectional identities. And we know that these details were important to the author of this text, to St. Luke, because why else would they be included? This passage to me highlight the facts that we're not supposed to not look at these things or to not see these identities, but that we're supposed to look into them, see the life in them, how they shape our characters, shape their minds, their hearts, and their spirits, and prepare them for Christ. And so what is it that moves the plot of this story along? What is it that takes this from the story of a missed connection or a long journey on which someone keeps their head down instead of finding something sacred. After all, we could imagine this story today. Our protagonist, the Ethiopian eunuch, on a train, reading, listening to a podcast, going about their own business where nothing happens. Have you ever been in one of those settings? You're on a train or an Uber and someone starts talking to you. What do you do? 
We can imagine a man like Philip walks into the train car and tries to make conversation, leans over and says, hey, what are you reading? And it would be absolutely reasonable for the Ethiopian eunuch in this scenario to blow Philip off, to say none of your business. It's kind of a, it's kind of a condescending question, isn't it? Do you understand what you're reading? And yet, why doesn't the Ethiopian eunuch respond that way? Why doesn't the story end there? Why doesn't it end with silence, with sarcasm? What makes this character respond with an open spirit? What makes this story move forward? I think it's grace. I think it's a profound capacity and receptivity to be changed. I think it's humility. Our protagonist doesn't reply with pride, doesn't say, yeah, I know what I'm reading. Thank you, like I might. But instead, they reply, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And do you know what that kind of open spirit, that kind of grace for the social faux pas of others, that kind of humility brings this character? Transformation. If you've ever had one of those conversations in a train car or an Uber or a plane that changes your life, you know that you're just sitting there and usually you'd mind your own business. But this time, for whatever reason, maybe you're bored or maybe you're emotional and you can't quite hide it as best you try. Or maybe you don't even know why you just chat. And the journey's made lighter and understanding between two strangers is made more profound. And both people leave changed. What is that? In this story, we, it talks a lot about the Holy Spirit as an acting and moving force. That it was the Holy Spirit that compelled Philip to go to the chariot. But it was the Holy Spirit that compelled the eunuch to respond with grace and humility. That is what I imagine the rest of this chariot ride is like. Those moments in our lives where for whatever reason, something is made new. Two strangers with nothing in common come to a new understanding. All of this because of an open and seeking spirit, one that wasn't closed off by the hardship or the oppression or the marginalization that they faced, but was made more empathetic by it. That wasn't made possible by ignoring differences, but by openly acknowledging them. And that, that openness is what baptism is all about, isn't it? That's what this whole crazy thing is about. Hearing something new, something crazy, the good news, the gospel, that all people of all races, tongues, tribes, gender identities, sexual orientations, and all and any other identity are loved and loved deeply. Hearing this and being changed by it transformed by it, setting aside everything for it, including our prejudices, which we all have, and our insecurities, and our peaceful and quiet train rides where we just want to be alone. Not because we must, but because we may. Because that's where the spirit is, and that's where the joy is, and that's where the best stories come from. That's where the best journeys begin. And so as we encounter this new lens for reading and so many other different lenses, as we encounter new information, as we encounter new people, may we have the open 
humble and receptive spirits of our protagonists today. May we be willing to ask questions, to jump into the water, and when we see an opportunity for transformation, may we say, look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? Look, here is a way for me to better love my neighbor. What's to prevent me from embracing it? Look, here is a new depth. It's scary, but what but fear is to prevent me from diving in? If baptism isn't just a singular event, if faith isn't just a single moment, but a commitment to follow Jesus every single day, then let this be another moment in which we choose to love, choose to be changed, choose to see ourselves and our neighbors within these sacred scriptures, this ever unfolding narrative of God's love and grace. Let's dive in. The water's fine. Amen. that we may be open to the founts of blessings that are everywhere, that we may see them and learn to discern where they are in our path, 
and that we may be open and receptive to the grace, to the love, to the healing, and to the new understanding that might be springing from that fount of every blessing. May we feel that in our hearts and in our souls today as we leave this space. And may we be blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace. Amen. Amen.